This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wine and More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine and More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Heyo, Maddie here. You're about to hear a fun little episode that exists because of you. It was inspired by emails we got from shortwave listeners from all over. In real talk, we feel extremely lucky to have listeners like you who listen to the show so much, write us with your own stories and episode ideas. So to keep episodes like this one coming your way, help us out. Support your local public radio station today. Go to donate.mpr.org short. Not shortwave, just short. We can't even afford both words. Again, that's donate.npr.org short. And thanks. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. Maddie Safaya here with NPR science correspondent Dan Charles. Hey, Dan. Hi. So, Dan, recently on the show, you brought to us a story of a bug called the spotted lanternfly. Spotted lanternfly. It's an insect, an invasive one that has been spreading across eastern Pennsylvania and into surrounding states. Uh, They're pretty big, a little bit like cicadas. They jump more than they fly. Not dangerous to people, but definitely dangerous to some things like vineyards and trees. So at the end of that episode, we said, if anybody listening has an interesting invasive species where they live, they should write us about it. And um, a lot of people did, Dan. Indeed. We heard about cane toads in Australia. Do not eat. Not good. Zebra mussels in Nevada, Lake Mead. How in the world did they get there? Stowaway bivalves, native to Russia. We heard about Asian carp, Brazilian pepper trees, hemlock woolly adelgids. So many plants and critters in so many places they should not be, Dan. That's right. So today, straight from our inbox, we're going to talk about three of them. Three invasive species, all which reveal how delicate and complicated ecosystems can be. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teledochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So Dan, we've got a bunch of emails from people all over the country about invasive species where they live. We picked three to talk about in a little bit more detail because it's a 10-minute podcast, people. We just, we're just we just doing three. We are sorry if we did not get to your little invader in your hometown. So, Dan, let's get started. Okay. The first species on our list is the lionfish. We heard about it from a few of you, including Eric at the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary, who wrote... Down here in the Florida Keys, we've got issues with invasive Indo-Pacific lionfish. There's a lot of different efforts to eradicate or manage them, and they fortunately taste good. I will say they do. I've had one. And can be fun to spearfish for. 
Now, different teams are looking at into automated drones with shock paddles, traps, and we, of course, have a lot of derbies for collecting them in mass. Dan, derbies and shock paddles. Here we go. The lionfish, first of all, it just looks wild. Yeah, uh, it looks like something out of a Dr. Seuss book. It's got spines coming out of its back. It's got fans for fins sort of spreading out. It's kind of a, sort of this reddish brown. Like orangey vibe. Yeah. It's kind of pretty. It normally lives in coastal areas in the Indian Ocean or along sort of the Southeast Asian coast. Somehow it got to North Carolina and Florida. Speculation is people had it in an aquarium and like dumped it in the ocean. Yeah, sure. Maybe. Sounds like stuff people would do. Uh, and it is now basically scarfing up the ecosystem. It's eating all kinds of native fish. It's got an incredible appetite. And there's a little bit of a mystery here because nobody knows exactly what keeps it under control in Asia, in its native habitat. Mm, Apparently, okay. you know, it's got predators there. The native fish, even like big fish, here off the eastern coast in the southeastern United States, don't seem to like to eat this creature. Yeah. Um, there, there is this one idea that basically humans, you know, we've got to step in. We've got to be the top predator here. Mm-hmm. So they've, you know, as you mentioned, they organize these hunting parties right. basically to like spear the lionfish. Because the idea is even if you can't eradicate the lionfish, if you can just like push their numbers down, um, it'll give more room for the native species to thrive. Okay, the second invasive species we want to talk about today is, I'm just going to read this email from Megan in South Florida. She wrote, although I studied entomology, amazing, in college and found your episode on the lanternfly interesting, it doesn't hold a candle to the invasive species that has taken over the Everglades. It's the python. Well, let's not compete out here, you know, but fine. I've seen pictures. They're astounding. So... Burmese pythons are native to southern and southeast Asia. There's the suggestion that Hurricane Andrew had a breeding facility for Burmese pythons in 92, releasing a bunch of animals. But one of the experts I talked to about this, his name is Matthew McAllister, says pythons were around way before that. He works for Big Cypress Natural Preserve in Florida, right next to the Everglades National Park, and they've got pythons there too. He says the main source of the problem is that people are buying pet pythons and then realizing that they can't take care of them or don't want them and releasing them into the wild. So then a few pythons turn into many, many pythons. Yeah, exactly. And it's actually really hard to say how many are in the Everglades. So Jill Josimovich, who is with the U.S. Geological Survey, told me that if you're out there trying to find a python, Dan, like if you and I were walking around python hunting, we have about a 1% chance of oh, finding so- them. So so they're both simultaneously all over the place and also really well hidden. So yeah, really see. difficult to find. But the pythons that are out there are doing some serious damage. So there's this big 2012 study that showed that small mammals started disappearing in areas where the pythons kind of moved in. So we're talking like roughly 99% of raccoons and opossums disappear. And then there was this one other study from a group led by Bob McCleary that was kind of cool where they put radio transmitters in rabbits so the researchers could track them. And in 11 months, 77% of those rabbits were found in the stomachs of Burmese pythons. They actually tracked the rabbits into the pythons. Yes, yeah. So it's pretty <laughs> pretty clear that these pythons are, are making moves in this area and, par- and problems. And they're eating a lot of prey animals, but not a lot of things are eating them. Yeah. And it's really, you know, it's making a dent yeah. on that ecosystem. I, I I have heard that there's some pretty extraordinary efforts going on to basically find them, track them down and 
kill them. Yeah. To- I mean, it's a huge collaborative effort. We're talking like local, state, federal levels, community scientists, volunteers, academics. And, and some of those efforts include hiring contractors to go in and hunt them. Uh, at one point, using trained dogs to try to sniff out the snakes, even releasing radio tagged male or female pythons to basically snitch on other snakes. So they would follow those snakes, hoping that they would be looking to reproduce and then find a, like, a bunch of males around a female. Wow. Like, take me to your leader. Yeah, yeah. they're snitches for sure. Unwillingly. <laughs> and my favorite part of this is that they sometimes, because the areas are so large, they're looking at track those snakes Using planes. What? Like flying flying overhead? To, you know, kind of... And monitoring the pythons down below? Yes, and then sending people in by foot. So they are looking at snakes from a plane. It sounds Dan. like a military-style operation. Did you miss my snakes on a plane, Dan? Oh, no, I totally missed it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a snakes on a plane joke, Dan. Okay, here we go. So they aren't... The deal is, the sad truth is, that they are not finding enough snakes. They're not taking enough snakes out of this area. Matt McAllister, the big cypress guy I talked about earlier, told me that none of the tools we have right now are effective enough to curb the problem. And, you know, they're trying to keep kind of the numbers down. Same with the lionfish, trying to keep the numbers down the best they can. And hopefully we'll learn enough about them that we can more effectively take them out of the ecosystem. Find some new balance. Yeah. All right. Final invasive species we are going to talk about today comes from another Dan in Colorado. Yes. Why don't you take it away, Dan? (laughs) So uh, this Dan wrote... I just listened to your episode on the lanternfly, and it brought to mind a battle with the invasive tamarisk tree in the desert southwest. One of the major impacts is their water consumption in the Colorado Basin. The interesting piece is there's already been implementation of a biological warfare solution with the introduction of the tamarisk beetle. Jeez. Okay. Dan in Colorado, one-two punch, tamarisk tree, tamarisk beetle. Dan Charles, go. This is a super interesting story. Starts with the tree. It's more like a, it's a very small tree, like a shrub, which was actually brought to this country more than a century ago uh, from kind of the Asian, Central Asian region, Uh because this thing is very hardy, has deep roots. And the idea was um, it could help control soil erosion or be Mm. a windbreak. But the thing has become kind of a monster in the West okay. and the Southwest. It's it's taken over riverbanks, replaced native willows and cottonwoods. There is that concern about it, you know, using up lots of water, although there's, I got to say, some controversy over exactly how much water it does use. Mm-hmm. There's no controversy over the fact it burns like crazy. Oh, no. Yeah, the leaves burn really hot and they just sort of catch fire and it's become... You know, in, in, instead of the native vegetation being kind of a fire break, right. the tamarisk is like a fire spreader. Um, okay. So enter this beetle, right? which they brought in again from, from Asia. The thing only eats tamarisks. Okay. It only eats the, the tamarisk leaves. And it has been in some ways amazingly successful. Huh. You know, they thought it would spread very slowly, like a couple of miles a year. Mm-hmm. Some cases it's spreading like 30 or 40 miles a year. But here's the twist. It's actually kind of been too successful (laughs) because you have this situation where the tamarisks have filled an ecological niche that maybe needed to be filled because some of these rivers, because, you know, we humans and agriculture and everything have used so much water from these rivers 
the water table has fallen so low that the native vegetation actually can't survive in some areas. So you get back to the original problem, which is the state of the rivers. Right, right, right. That's kind of the key to the whole thing, you know, in this sort of ecological situation that humans have actually originally disrupted in like one, two, three, many ways. Wow. So, Dan, just to wrap up here, we've been talking about invasive species that are kind of imported here to North America, where we are. But obviously, we also export them, too. So what's a good example of that? Well, right, because, you know, we always everybody wants to be the victim. Right. (laughs) And so it's it's always the invaders coming this way. But, you know, the Americas have sent invaders other places, too. And like right now, there is an insect called the fall army worm, which is a voracious pest. (laughs) And. It somehow got first to Africa and now to Asia, and it is like eating its way now into China, devouring important food crops, their own invasive species sent by us here. NPR science correspondent Dan Charles. And if you were one of the listeners who wrote us about invasive species, thank you for sharing your story. You can always write us with your thoughts or feelings about the show, ideas for what you'd like us to cover at shortwave at npr.org. That's shortwave, one word, at npr.org. This episode was produced by Brent Bachman and edited by Viet Le. I'm Maddie Safaya, and we're back tomorrow with a look at a polar expedition to the top of the world. Until then, thanks for listening to Shortwave from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, ShipBob. E-commerce logistics making you question why you started your business? Time to outsource fulfillment to the experts over at ShipBob. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. ShipBob. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little breaks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.